Well, we'll see how this morning goes. Oh, I, there are some people up here. I was wondering if I'd have people up there. If, if not, I was going to step down, but uh, I need all the height that I can get. I, uh, when I was over in Morocco, I, uh, at one time I, uh, uh, I had colleagues when I was over there. I had a colleague that was six foot seven, used to play basketball with, another colleague that was six foot five, another colleague that was a teacher that was six foot three. And the Moroccans used to look at me and say, are you sure you're an American? <laughs> but uh, I am. And uh, so unlike Mike, I'm not going to sit down today. I'm <laughs> so anyway, glad to see you up in the balcony and down below here. And hopefully we can work, make it all work. I am Larry McFall. This is my first time to teach in a long, long time. And so I, I hope that we can make it work here. And I think we've got a little diff, a little technological difficulties, and thank you, Eric, for being willing to sit up here and maybe hit the button for me once in a while. And in fact, this is my first time to try a PowerPoint. My boys have already given me a hard time here about my uh, amazingly new uh, uh, template that I have here with the mountains. <laughs> have any of you ever worked with, temp- with PowerPoint before? It, it comes with the base mountains, but I, I, I'm not good enough yet to where I could import a new, a new template there. I'm uh, going to be talking about relationships today, and uh, particularly a relationship with God. I had a tough time finding out much about that. You know, you can't tell jokes about a relationship with God, really. Um, at least I, I, I don't feel like I dare do that at any rate. Um, I did think about, though, you know, maybe you could talk something about relationships. There, uh, I found one little thing about great advice to pass on to your daughters. And since I have so many daughters, I... Thought it'd be a great thing for me to have here. I could put up. Um, one thing is uh, uh, great advice to pass on to your daughters. This is regarding men and relationships with men. Uh, don't imagine that you can change a man unless he's in diapers. <laughs> Very important, okay? Uh, another piece of advice. Uh, Never let your man's mind wander. It's too little to be out alone. Hmm. Oh. <laughs> well, guys always tell the dumb blonde jokes, you know, so I figured, you know, we ought to, what's good ought to go around. Um, go for younger men. You might as well. They never mature anyway. <laughs> men are all the same. They just have different faces so that you can tell them apart. Okay, um, so one, two, three, four, there's number five. Women don't make fools of men. Most of them are the do-it-yourself types. Okay, uh, six, let's see, am I up to six? Best way to get a man to do something is to suggest they're too old for it. That really works, you know, I, I, I can, I got personal, yeah, I know, it is. Um, I had some guys tell me when I was visiting Chad a while back, uh, when I was in Florida, that I was too old to be wrestling at this point. So I had to get out on the mat with the guys. Um, If you want a committed man, look in a mental hospital. How about this one? Uh, Remember, a sense of humor does not mean that you tell him jokes. It means that you laugh at his. You're doing a great job this morning. Thank you. Thank you. 
Finally, sadly, all men are created equal. All men are created equal. Okay. Anyway, the the nice thing about that is that it's not exactly true, is it? Uh, Hopefully. Men can change. And women can change. We can change as we get into our right relationship with God. It's not that other people can change us. And don't expect your... Certainly, that is a good piece of advice. Don't expect you to change your man's mind. But if the Lord's involved in his life, something can happen to you. can happen that, in that relationship. It's a privilege to be speaking with you this morning. You know, when you get a chance to share something from God's word, you're the one that benefits the most. And as you look deeper into, into the word and get to know God better through the process... You, you, you do get to know the Lord better, and he begins to work a change in your life. And that's what I consider one of the greatest privileges about getting to speak to people in a, like in a situation like this. This morning, I'd like to try to provoke myself and you, because I'm a spectator and participant in this as well, to a deeper relationship with God, if we can. Uh, as C.S. Lewis, I think, put it, We'd like to go further up and further in. Has anybody read uh, the Chronicles of Narnia? Want to hit a button there? Thanks. So how is your spiritual life? And again. Has anybody read uh, The Last Battle by C.S. Lewis? Yeah, several hands, but not all, everybody. I'd recommend it. If you haven't read it yet, great, great little book. Uh, Appreciate it so much. Looking forward to the movie coming up about coming up about uh, Prince Caspian, wondering how well Disney will handle that one. There's a lot of neat things in there about a relationship with God that C.S. Lewis is pulling out of his own relationship with God in the process. Let me hit a button there. Yeah, this, this talk that I'm giving today is kind of the first part. I actually get to be up here again next week. And uh, today it's talking about loving God. And next week we'll be talking about loving others. Let me back up uh, just a moment. Oh, I, excuse me, I guess I should say uh, uh, this uh, talk that I'm giving today is kind of based upon, it was prompted by an illusion that Randall Bertel made a few weeks ago about the biography of the most reluctant convert, the biography of C.S. Lewis. And I went and was, um, I went to look that up in the library. I was, I was intrigued by the title and, and uh, by Randall's description of it. And in the process, I walked out not only from the library with that book, but with another one called Into the Region of Awe, Mysticism in C.S. Lewis. The title on that one really intrigued me because I've always, for many years now, I've considered myself to be kind of along the lines of what uh, Philip Johnson of the, uh, the uh, ID fame, the intelligent design fame, has called himself that is a recovering rationalist, somebody who feels a lot more comfortable talking about maybe the evidences for the resurrection or, or hermeneutics or uh, prophecy or evidences for our faith than I am talking about mystical union with Christ, about my personal relationship with Christ. And I've struggled with how do I talk about that with people? How do I get into that whole area? And I, 
and this book actually helped me. I found it very interesting to read, and you might want to check out, Into the Region of Awe, where David C. Downing describes C.S. Lewis's going further up and further in, his going deeper into a, a relationship with the Lord in the process. Might just back up a moment uh, here, I started to say, uh, um, you know, we often talk about a relationship with Christ. Uh, you may have heard the saying that I don't believe in religion, I believe in a relationship. Have you heard that before? I've said that before, I've said it. Um, I once upon a time, I remember a very key time in, uh, when I was in a carpooling situation back and forth to Mission Valley High School years ago, where I used to teach high school many years ago. Uh, had a carpool partner who was the head basketball coach at the Mission Valley High School team. He'd been there for about two years. And he was a very disgruntled fellow. His name was Dick. And what he was disgruntled about is he felt like he was wasting his life teaching high school basketball. You see, he had been the assistant coach at Washburn University at the same time with a guy by the name of, a young upstart by the name of Bob Chipman. And when it came time to choose a head coach for the uh, basketball team at Washburn University, Dick was passed over in favor of Bob Chipman. And Dick was very, very discouraged by that. bitter actually and he spent a lot of time talking about that and his feelings and I used to try to help him and, and try to point him in a different direction because I could just see this was just eating him alive and I tried to point him to, uh, to Christ and we would talk about the evidences for the faith and the process and he, um, he never really listened to me uh, until one day I happened to say well you know Dick do you have a relationship with Christ and that seemed to really pique his interest. And he wanted to know, what are you talking about? Do you actually talk with him? Do you see him? Does he tell you useful things like what investment to buy? And, and I, I found myself just really floundering, not knowing how to describe to Dick how I could have a relationship with God through the word and through prayer and talking with God. It just seemed to all fall flat, and I went back to talking about the evidences for the faith and the other things I felt more comfortable with. Have you ever been in that situation? We've been trying to talk with somebody about your relationship with the Lord and had a difficult time expressing what is really there and what's really a part of your life. You know, uh, I've always had a kind of a personal revulsion against this word mysticism. Um, And I think that rightly so, because usually when we talk about mysticism, we're talking about something where you're, you're trying to describe a vague or abstract concept, something that you don't really understand yourself. But I think when... When C.S. Lewis used the term mysticism, or when David C. Downing uses it to describe mysticism in C.S. Lewis, he's describing something else. He's describing something that's very concrete and solid, something that's actually beyond, beyond, uh, beyond description because words fail them to describe exactly what's going on. But, you know, to enter into this relationship with God so you can have that, we do have to... You, there are, you have to, first of all, cover the, the basics 
and have the ABCs. I assume everybody here has a relationship with the Lord. But just in case, why don't we hit the button? Where are we at here? Uh, what does it mean? Yeah, go ahead and again. To have a relationship with God. And button again. God wants you to know him. I think you should know that for sure. If you don't already, thus says the Lord. For example, in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. And by the way, I'm going going to apologize at the front here for proof texting, which is a bad thing to do, but you'll just have to hope at this point and believe, I guess, that that I have done the proper hermeneutics back here and have looked at uh, verses in their context and examined uh, the meaning of the words. And I believe all the things that Randall has been talking about in our Sunday school lesson. But just proof texting at the moment, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the, uh, uh, what is it, rich man boast in his riches, but, no, I missed mighty. Let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practice steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in all the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord, declares the Lord. Jeremiah, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. God wants us to know him. Hit the button again. And this is eternal life. Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer in John 17. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life right now that we can enter into. Let's hit the button again. And again. (laughs) For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God, Paul writes in Ephesians. Ephesians three sixteen through 19. Well, entering into this relationship with Christ does require a beginning. You know, it's, I, I grew up in a church, well, the, the Methodist church is where I grew up. And oftentimes we talked about... Uh, in the Methodist Church, about faith being a process. You just kind of grew into it. And yet, it's kind of it's amazing that Methodists would ever believe that, given the history of John Wesley and how he himself uh, was, had been a missionary to England, an Anglican missionary to, to the American Indians, and then was on a ship going back to England after a failure as a missionary and was so, and got caught in a storm and was scared to death for his life and was amazed by the security and, and peacefulness of the Moravians who were praying there on the ship and so amazed by that that he went to check out their meetings once he got back to England and, and had his famous Alders, Aldersgate experience, the warming of the heart, where he entered into what he considered a personal relationship with the Lord and he found his ministry rejuvenated, regenerated, and he became a, the great founder that we know, and, and missionary, and, and hymn writer, and he and his brother, Charles, there was an entry point for him where he entered into this spiritual life. And there needs to be for us as well. 
And if you don't have that already, it's as simple as ABC. A, agree with God that you're in bondage to sin, separated from God. We have to have that. You have to acknowledge that, first of all. Whoops, we back up a little bit. B, believe that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Jesus is our Savior. Jesus means Savior. Christ, King. He is our Savior King. You have to you have to believe that to enter into the right relationship with God. And C, call on Christ to save you, redeem him, redeem you from your bondage. If you haven't started with the ABCs, you, you haven't started on the right foot. You cannot get into a relationship with God without entering that first. But I'm assuming everybody here pretty much has, has already been through the ABCs, and we're beyond those foundational building blocks And we're trying to go further up and further in. If you haven't, throw yourself in reckless abandon at the feet of God. Okay. Next slide. I I hope you will join me in craving something that that has been so real to others. Um, So appreciate Bob Hannibal leading us through... um, uh, leading us through Revelation here a while back and leading us to that point where we realized that John was experiencing something that was so concrete, solid, that he couldn't describe it all. Something that was just overwhelming his senses. And it was beyond anything that he really knew. It wasn't that it wasn't real or that it was abstract or vague. It was something that he, couldn't, he just couldn't uh, fully describe. And John isn't alone here. Consider the following verses. John 15, 17 and 18. Abraham uh, at the, uh, at, uh, with, the first, with the covenant where God walked between the, the, the split carcasses of the sacrifice with the fire pot. Trying to describe that. You get the sense Abraham is really struggling. Uh, Genesis 32, 24 through 30. As a former wrestler, uh, I... I like the idea of Jacob wrestling with God, but trying to explain that, and Jacob trying to explain what's going on there, that's one of the tough passages of Scripture, trying to figure out exactly what's going on. Uh, Gen- Exodus 33, 12 through 33, Moses being put in the cleft of the rock, and God passes before him and reveals himself to him, allows Moses to see his backside, and we have the great Shema, the great name of God that comes out at that time that um, he is merciful and just. Um, we have uh, Psalm 145.3, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Proverbs 30 is one of my favorite passages because it's a, in verses 1 through 4, it describes Azur, the son of Yaka of Massa, or it could be translated as Oracle. Massa was a son of Ishmael, and it's an interesting thought to think that maybe Azur was a son of Ishmael somewhere in the process. Maybe, maybe not. Won't go to the wall on that one. But at any rate, Azur goes on to describe that he really doesn't know anything of God. Let's read it here a second. The, um, in Proverbs 30. Let 
The man declares, I am weary of, O God, I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? Jews and Muslims would be very happy if the verse just stopped right here. But it goes on. And what is his son's name? Surely you know. Interesting passage. An allusion to the son. I've actually heard people say there's no reference to the son of God in the Old Testament. Well, there's at least one. Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Great passage when, uh, when I've talked with Muslims along the way, and, and they've thrown out me the verses in the Quran where it says that God did not beget, nor was he begotten. God does not have a son. That's blasphemy. We take those things for granted, don't we? We've heard them, these illusions. Father, Son, Holy Spirit in Scripture. And we just know that there's, we're not talking about a biological relationship. We're talking about another kind of relationship going on here. I like to ask Muslims, based upon this verse from Isaiah 55, that uh, don't you believe that God is unknowable, that he's very difficult to understand, that he's beyond your understanding? Yes, 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 they would all say. Well, then how do you know it's not possible that God would have a son? Throws them, it gets them thinking about some things. We have a chance to talk. We enter into that to, into that area of a mystical understanding of God, into a a deeper relationship with him. 1 Corinthians 9 raises an interesting point. In verse 1, where Paul is talking, and he, he says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? One of the things I find interesting from that passage is that Many times in his testimony, he talks about having seen the Lord. But when you stop and think about that just a moment, about his, on his road to Damascus, when he was persecuting the Christians and all that was going on there, Paul saw the Lord Jesus, and that was a pivotal point in his life. We all know, we all agree. But did everybody see Jesus? Interesting thought, isn't it? Those who were with him saw the light, they heard the voice, they didn't see Jesus. Is it possible that sometimes that our encounters with Christ are not all subject to all the five senses for all of us? I'm looking forward to, I said, uh, Prince Caspian coming up uh, by Disney. That's a key point in, in Prince Caspian throughout the book. C.S. Lewis has uh, Lucy being able to see Aslan at key points, when they need to make a change in their direction or do something, and nobody else sees him. He's right there, but it takes time for them to, first of all, Edmund sees them, and then, and then Peter, and then it's, 
it takes them step by step, a little time. Peter's not the, the, even though he's the high king, he's not the first one to see Aslan along the way. There are times and things about our, sometimes our relationship with the Lord, we don't necessarily, they're not subject to all the five senses, all the five senses that Aristotle described. There can be different encounters with the Lord. So in a sense, we have to hold back judgment sometimes on people. Now, we have to be careful with God's word. We, we, want, we want to make sure that we're doing that everything that we do is according to God's word. At the same time, we can't totally deny prophecy. We can't totally throw out some aspects about our walk with the Lord and that other people's encounters with them might be a little bit different from our own. In 2 Corinthians 9, Paul goes on to talk about thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. In Ephesians 3.8, he says, This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of the Messiah. Philippians 4.7, And the peace of God which passes all understanding, comprehension, depending upon your, your translation, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 3.16, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. 1 Corinthians 13.12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. There is more to go on in our relationship with Christ beyond the ABCs. Well, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Even the inspired prophets and apostles had difficulty finding words to describe the ultimate reality of the Lord, who is the way, the truth, and the life. To cap it all off, Peter concedes that Paul's writings, which is a great passage there at the end of 2 Peter, because we have the confirmation that Paul's writings are equal with inspired scripture of the Old Testament. But Peter concedes that Paul's writings, although they are inspired, they're, and he's talking about future events, that, that uh, they contain things that, that are hard to understand. This is in 2 Peter 3, 14 and through 18. I think, obviously, Peter hadn't read John yet. Revelation hadn't been written yet. <laughs> um, if he found uh, Paul difficult at that point. But there were... He goes on to say that the, they're hard to understand that the, uns, that the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. And that is the danger if we don't approach Scripture hermetically correctly, as Randall's been trying to lead us along. Nevertheless, going further up and further in, many have given up. We shouldn't give up. We should, we should pursue. We should try to get involved in the science of interpreting the scripture and, and learn how to uh, apply scripture to our lives correctly. Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says that, 
and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And as Randall ended up here in the Sunday School lesson today, and I agree with wholeheartedly, the goal of our scripture study, as we try to interpret scripture correctly, is to get deeper in our relationship with Christ. And why do we want to get deeper with him? So that we can get to know him better, so that we can be transformed more and more into his image. That is the goal. Ultimately, to glorify God. But how do we glorify God? By being transformed into the image of Christ. Hebrews 12.2. The writer of Hebrews talks about looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 1 John 3, 2. Dear friends, we are God's children now. It doesn't yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we know, we, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. So what are some of the roadblocks that, are, that have impacted us on loving our Father and getting deeper with God, going further up and further in? The things that keep us from being transformed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. And we could, I'd be probably more comfortable leading a brainstorming session right now because you could probably come up with as much as I could. But we'll flip through the slides that I have. Idolatry, obviously. First uh, John 2, 15 and 16. The lust of the flesh. Let me hit a button. The lust of the eyes. And the pride of life. The lust of the flesh, uh, you know, thinking of all those bodily good things, things that we desire that our bodies want, things like sleep. Well, what about Jesus? You know, he, he abraded for the, the disciples for not being able to wait for him and pray uh, there in Gethsemane and other times too. There's a, even a point where even a good thing like sleep shouldn't get in the way of our service and our relationship with the Lord. Or food. Think about Jesus out in the wilderness, denying himself food for 40 days and 40 nights, turning, uh, being tempted by Satan to turn stone into bread. Is there anything wrong with eating bread? No. The wrong thing would have been taking it at the wrong time. It was not God's timing for him to have that good thing. Um, all of our bodily functions. I mean, we could talk about marital relationships and, you know, all the things that are involved that are, that are good, that are part of God's, when they're a part of God's timing. But when they're not a, in God's correct timing, they become the lust of the flesh. And they can get in the way of a relationship with God. The lust of the eyes. The desire for things. The desire for, um, well, I guess greed is actually called idolatry in another passage of the scripture, and I don't have the citation for that. But the, um, we all want things, and that's something that we're certainly prone to here in the United States. We just had the crew come back from Haiti recently describing the happiness of the people um, that um, 
my, my parents-in-law, who are former missionaries, had this phrase, blessed be nothing. And it's a good little phrase in a lot of ways. The, uh, when you have more, you have a lot more to think about. It certainly impacts you, the, what you're thinking about the rest of your life. The pride of life. And that's the craving of attention, promoting of oneself at the cost of others. All of these are different forms of idolatry. When it comes to the pride of life, uh, and when it comes to this whole aspect of going deeper with God, I think of Philip Johnson. Again, I mentioned him before. I tried to look up his book. I've got it someplace, and in our move two years ago that I've not totally unpacked yet, I've probably got his book. I've, I know I've got it someplace. Um, it's uh, the title of the book that I'm thinking of is uh, Right Questions. Uh, yeah, The Right Questions, Truth, Meaning, and Public Debate. It's the most personal of all of his books in that he describes something that happened to him fairly recently. It's his only book that he's written that I know of since, he, since this encounter. He had a stroke. He was at the top of his game and leading the ID movement, intelligent design movement, leading the wedge, impacting the scientific community. And then he had this stroke. And it suddenly limited his mental faculties and his ability to speak. And he learned at that point something that he had not realized, that he, a lot of his involvement with the ID movement was really just feeding his ego. It was really just part, of, part and parcel of, of his pride. He was wanting to, he enjoyed being able to run intellectual circles around people and, and some of the people in the scientific community and, and pointing out to them their philosophical underpinnings and their circular reasoning and the things that were going on in that respect. He, um, that was a, lot, a large part of his motivation and it was a roadblock to his getting to know God and going deeper with him. When he had his stroke, it suddenly removed all that that he was depending upon. And it came, there was a key point when he was lying in the hospital and connected to tubes and, and when he couldn't, you know, he couldn't think, he couldn't talk. And a couple from his church came in and sang a hymn, and here's where I wish I could have found the actual story. I went out to Christian Book and Gift and tried to find if they had a book on the shelf and different places. I went online. I could not find it. But they came in, they sang a hymn, and it was at that point that he realized what he was missing, and he wanted something deeper with God, more than just, at that point he, he began to himself, call himself a recovering rationalist, that all his Christian life up until that point had been a recovering rationalist, and he was now sensing that there was more, a relationship with God to which he could go deeper into. And he wanted that, and he began to enter into that. But it started with humility, learning that he was weak, that he couldn't depend upon his mind, that the Christian life didn't depend upon a person's mind. And And then that got rid of the roadblock to his knowing God. Got another slide there. There are other forms of idolatry, of course, um, but they all fall, fall under the term of idolatry. You could talk about deception, um, the false worldly philosophies and religions that don't fit with the truth reality of the world that God has revealed to us. 
Uh, the lies of this world are most apt to catch those who are ignorant of God's word. And that's, that's where Peter's warning comes in. And, uh, or people who are unstable in their character, maybe especially prone to peer pressure, young people, or, or just the culture around them. One of the biggest benefits to going overseas to a place like Haiti or uh, where Hannah's going in East Africa is that when you come back to the States, you realize kind of for the first time maybe how so much of your Christian faith is based upon an American culture more than we oftentimes realize. And it helps you to begin thinking counterculturally, to begin thinking about what is really the basis here that I need in my life? What is what is the most basic to scripture. Um, I think of this whole aspect of things uh, when it comes to even scripture, which I depend upon completely. But when I was in Morocco, we had a situation where the Bible was very dangerous, where for a Muslim who had left Islam and become a Christian, a convert from Islam, if he had a Bible in his hands, it could mean all sorts of problems. You realize a Christian over there cannot get married. Jenna and, and uh, you guys, uh, you're, you're just about to get married coming up here. If you were living in Morocco, you would have to go before a Muslim judge and confess that you were Muslims in order to get married. Just think of that. And if you're Christians there, the... Um, um, The pressure that's on them in that culture is horrendous. And to have a Bible in their hands could cause tremendous problems in their, uh, for them. They could be disinherited. They could lose their job. They could be killed in a Muslim country. It was always our prayer when we were over there that we wouldn't unwittingly expose somebody for their Christian testimony. That if they got in trouble, it would be because they themselves chose to talk about their relationship with God. In a situation like that, where people can't have the Bible in front of them every day for their morning devotions, what do you do? And that's where I've always, I have memorized scripture throughout my life, and that's been a very important part of, of, of things. And I've spent a lot of my time meditating on scripture. But the concepts of scripture are, are also very valuable. And I've, I learned through time, especially when I was in Morocco, and my mind was so worn out from memorizing Arabic, that I could still take concepts of scripture and Meditate on those things. And those can still lead you into, into a deep relationship with the Lord. What else do we have here? We've got deception. We've got uh, sorcery and magic. You know, uh, the, um, in the Bible, sorcery doesn't get much. Uh, this is kind of one that's, that's way back, and we don't think of it very much in American society, although it's making a comeback, isn't it, in some ways. Um, the, the belief in spiritual forces that, can, that we can control our environment for our own purposes instead of the Lord's. But there are spiritual forces beyond our control, and if we try to master them or work alongside them, we'll find ourselves the slave of them before we're done. C.S. Lewis had first-hand experience with sorcery in his early years, I found out when I was reading The Reluctant Convert. He had an uncle who was deep into sorcery, with the re- and eventually in his life then, and it attracted, C.S. Lewis had an attraction at that point. He was at a point in his life where he was still rejecting Christ. 
he was a, an atheist at that point, but he was looking into spiritual things, and his uncle was delving into these things. Maybe if you've read uh, uh, the very first book chronologically in the, uh, in the series, uh, where you've got the old man who's, a, um, who's a, a sorcerer, and he ends up being the slave of Jadis in the end. That model was really based upon this uncle that uh, C.S. Lewis knew, who went into, uh, at, a, at one point in his late 40s, early 50s, he went into seizures and then died in about a month. And C.S. Lewis marked it up to his involvement in the occult and the things that he was doing as far as sorcery. There are spiritual things going on. C.S. Lewis, when he handles magic and sorcery, he does talk about such things, but it's always under the control of Aslan, isn't it? It's, you don't see Lucy and Peter using magic and sorcery. If there is anybody ever using it, it's Aslan, who's in control of the deeper magic, in a sense. Another one might be um, materialistic naturalism, or naturalistic materialism, whichever way you want to pronounce, take that one. Uh, that one's more common today. And yet, uh, when you start with the presupposition that, that all there is is matter and we don't have any, there's nothing supernatural, nothing miraculous, nothing else behind it, you can end up with some pretty weird places. You know, alchemy is an interesting thing. You go back and look at it. It's the begin, beginning of the science of chemistry in a lot of ways. And a lot of our great uh, scientists and theologians of the past, uh, people like Isaac Newton, for example, I was very involved with alchemy at one point, the idea of trying to separate things and then join them together in new ways. Take, for example, uh, one of the most common ones thought of is uh, separating out the base elements uh, like lead and things and trying to make gold out of it. Well, that gets into almost sorcery. But on a naturalistic level, when you start out without an ethical Christian viewpoint to begin with, you can end up with some pretty weird places today, too. And I think we're getting into some things today like, uh, well, mixing genes, for example, of plants and animals and humans, separating out, putting together. It's almost like you start around the barn and sorcery goes one direction and materialistic naturalism goes the other direction. And they end up meeting on the back side of the barn before they're done. Let's go on here. But getting rid of the roadblocks. Let's go on in our walk with God. How do we do it? Let's get into some practical things. And this stuff you all know. We all know. We talk about it all the time. We've got to get into his word. Um, We do our best to make an accurate, hermeneutically correct, meditative study of God's word. God's word is his word about about the Word, the Word of God, about Jesus. The Bible is his story. Do you approach the Bible this way? There, there are times I know that I've done Bible study instead of studying the Bible. Instead of trying to... I've, I've gone to, to the Bible to learn facts as opposed to trying to learn about God instead of trying to learn about Jesus. How about you? Have... Is your purpose to gather facts about God or is it to get to know God better? Hearing, reading, studying, memorizing, especially meditating on God's word can help you increase in your knowledge of Christ 
and give you a foundation for stability in your life. It's the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. We, 2 Corinthians 3.18, we've already mentioned to be transformed from one degree of, to another into Christ's image. Romans 12.2, to be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you can prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 2 Timothy 2.3-7, think it over. Now here's a sermon for you. Anybody looking for something to talk about during open worship? The Lord will give you understanding. Paul lays out for Timothy, think over these things. What's it like to be a soldier on service? What's it like to be, a, to be a, an athlete competing according to the rules? What's it like to be a farmer taking care of his fields? How does all that relate to a relationship with the Lord? We can meditate on God's word. We can apply it to our lives. We can find new applications. Next slide. And that, that's why I would... Um, Let's go on with that one. Skip that one. And Hebrews 12.2, we've done that. Let's go on. Yeah, we've done that. Are we let's, let's go on. Okay. And again. All right. I use meditation as kind of a transition point because I see it in a lot of ways as a transition point between getting to know God through his word and prayer. It's actually kind of the next step. Move from meditation to talking with him. The, um, as we get to know God, we need to talk with him throughout the day. Uh, meditation is the act of ruminating, chewing over what you know of God and digesting the knowledge so that it can feed your spiritual life. I may not be the sharpest knife around, but meditation has always been a big part of my life, as I mentioned before. When I couldn't memorize on individual verses, I, I always tried to memorize or tried to meditate on different uh, concepts of God. And there's so, you know, more often th- through the years as I've meditated on the concepts and metaphorical language, I've, I've been, um, you know, there's just so many things in there as you think, I think about how limited God's, how limited the words are in expressing what we're trying to talk about. I've already mentioned Father, Son, Holy Spirit. A couple of my other favorites. How about lion and lamb? You know, uh, what's it mean? How does that fit in? Or what about uh, the characteristics of God, his attributes? How is it that God is jealous? God is vengeful. And we're talking about anthropomorphism and putting human, putting, uh, human characteristics onto God. It's the best that we can do, but words do fail us at a certain point. And we have to put all that in context of his goodness and of his, of his love. We talk of a relationship with God, and my colleague Dick might get hung up on the idea that we have a relationship. Uh, that to have a relationship, we have to literally see God and get any question answered get our questions answered, but are we better off to compare God to a Google search or a Facebook or an eHarmony relationship? I don't think so. <laughs> Words fail us, don't us. We, may, um, we acknowledge his presence through talking with him. Prayer, in other words. Peter talked with Jesus, and Jesus told him about his end of life on earth. Peter asked him about John. Remember that situation? And... Jesus replied, um, 
If I wanted to remain until I come again, what is that to you? You come and follow me. The Lord doesn't always tell us somebody else's story, does he? So when we come together in prayer, we don't come together, and you may, this morning, by the way, Lion and Lamb is working at putting, we're trying to put together this prayer list. We're going to be meeting after the meeting here. And you may feel at some point, even today, that you'd like somebody to pray with you, not as a priest interceding for you, but just somebody who wants to come alongside you and go to the Lord with you, support you as you come before the Lord and pray with you. We'd love to do that. Let's go to the next slide. We pray like this when we come to him. Our Father, we have a personal relationship with him. And again, Ephesians 6.18, praying at all times in the spirit, we are told to do. And again, Philippians 4.6, by prayer, make your requests known to God. We need to keep praying. Let's go to the next slide. And then finally, another way to grow in our relationship with him, and this isn't exhaustive, but that's to talk about him with one another. The, um, this kind of goes back in some ways to, uh, to Deuteronomy 6, where, Jesus, where God lays out, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one God, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. It goes on to talk about him. And you shall talk of him when you lie down. And when you get up, when you walk in the way, all along life we should be talking about him with other people. When you sit, walk, lie down, and rise. In Luke 24, Jesus modeled this on the road to Emmaus. Two guys, after the crucifixion of Christ, walking along the way. And they are talking about the events in Jerusalem. Jesus comes alongside them. They don't even know it's him. And he described, and they, he asked them what's, what they're talking about. And they said, are you the only person who doesn't know the recent events in Jerusalem, what's just happened? And he goes on to describe for them, oh, slow of heart to believe. And he goes on to, to explain to them all throughout Scripture the, how prophecies fit for him. How often do we talk with each other about the Lord when it's not a time set aside specifically for doing that? You know, a lot of what we call Christian fellowship today, we get together to watch a football game or, or play an activity together or do all sorts of things. And it's, you know, we don't talk about the Lord. We don't even bring him into the situation. Can it really be called a fellowship? Can it be called Christian fellowship when, when the Lord isn't even a part of what we're doing? Next. Um, and then 1 Corinthians 11, 24 and 25. And then verses that's 11, chapter 11 is talking about the Lord's Supper and the meeting and the breaking of bread together. And then 1426 is a part of that meeting also. People bringing different things to it. One of uh, a teaching, another one of prayer, a, a prophecy, different things. And you know our open worship time that we have together and that we're going to do hopefully in just a few minutes if I can get stopped here in time... Um, is a great place to, to try to do that, to get to, to, and I'd especially encourage the young men, if you haven't done it, because young men, we're, we're you, I can't say we anymore, uh, <laughs> you are, a, you probably don't think yourself real articulate, you probably are not real big on relationships, it's this whole, you know, hormonal thing through the, dividing the two sides of the brain, maybe, I don't know, but, 
Take the opportunity when you have open worship. Prepare ahead of time. Do like the old preacher that talked about how he did things. First of all, he, he read and studied until he was full, and then he prayed until he was hot, and then he just let go. And that's what you basically need to do, is uh, get some, do your preparation ahead of time and come prepared. And it doesn't have to be anything really huge. Maybe you just want to talk about the farmer in his field or about the, uh, the athlete competing according to the rules or about this, the soldier who doesn't get involved in civilian affairs. It could be something real small. Or maybe you just want to have a hymn to suggest, to sing about. Or maybe you want to... Maybe you could respond to something that's said in prayer. It doesn't have to be real involved. But our open worship time is a great time to talk together about the Lord and to practice talking about it. We should do it more often than that. We should do it all the time when we're walking, sitting, lying down, all the things, when we're eating together, all those things. But that's how we grow in our relationship with the Lord is by talking about Him with one another. Next slide. So, anyway, going further up and further in, we need to be in the scripture. We need to be meditating on it. We need to be talking with God. We need to be talking with one another about the Lord. Let's go further up and further in. I hope you'll join me. Hope you'll, I had a good friend who for many years, uh, uh, he's, he's in St. Louis now, I haven't seen him for years, but his favorite question to ask any Christian he, he met he just meet people all the way along. And he'd always ask them. I would accompany him a lot. I was with him a lot. And it, it, for me, it was almost a cliche to hear him say it. But it wasn't to the people that he was meeting. And he had great discussions with them. He'd always ask them, so how's your spiritual life? So how's your spiritual life today? Are we going further up and further in? There's so much more we can go to than the ABCs. Let's stop there. And we are going to enter into, into uh, open worship, I believe, will we? Yeah, start with regular worship. Start with regular worship. Okay. Then let's pray here just a moment. Lord, uh, I lift this time to you, and um, uh, I know there's a lot of things that I could have sure done to improve what I said this morning, but I, I, I hope that something of my heart would come through and I hope it would be pleasing to you. And I pray that it would be somewhat motivational to the people who are here as well to, to see they don't have to have it all perfect, that they can talk about you with other people, and um, that they would want to get into your scripture and, and read that love letter that you've given to them again, and to spend time at it, spend time looking for you, getting to know you better. Lord, we do it uh, recognize we want to be like Jesus. We've got a craving for those things that are more solid and more real in our lives. We have a craving to know you better, that you're going to ultimately fulfill in our lives, and we thank you for that. Lord, I just pray that you would draw us more into the image of Christ and help us to get to know one another, go deeper with one another as we go deeper with you. In Jesus' name, amen.